0: Blogging is more than 20 years old, and over that period of time, numerous publishing platforms have been created. Squarespace and Blogger and Medium and Twitter are popular closed-source blogging platforms. WordPress has been the most popular open-source blogging platform, and much of the internet, including Software Engineering Daily, runs on WordPress. WordPress is powerful, and news companies, e-commerce, websites, and many other kinds of businesses use it as their central publishing tool. But WordPress has been around for 15 years, and there was room for a new blogging platform. There are also potentially some conflicts of interest between WordPress, the open source project, and WordPress.com, which is a company started to host WordPress websites by the creator of WordPress. And John O'Nolan was working as a WordPress developer when he decided to start a new publishing platform called Ghost. Five years after starting Ghost, Ghost is a success with a thriving open source community, profitable SaaS business, and companies like DigitalOcean and Mozilla using Ghost to host their blogs. In today's episode, John and I discussed his background with WordPress and what he wanted to do differently with Ghost, as well as the software architecture of Ghost. We also touched on the Ghost SaaS business and the management of the open source project. Before we get started, we are also hiring a creative operations lead. If you're an excellent communicator, you can check out our job posting at softwareengineeringdaily.com/jobs. This is a great job for somebody who is an engineer, but they're looking for something that is more creative, more editorial. Or somebody who just graduated a coding boot camp, perhaps somebody with a background in the arts who's making their way into technology. I know there's a lot of people like that. If you want to be creative and you want to learn more about engineering, you can check out this role at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs. John O'Nolan is the co-founder and CEO of Ghost. John, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Blogging and personal websites are a large part of the internet, and many people use WordPress, including myself. WordPress is an open-source content management system. You can use it to make blogs and websites, and much of the internet runs on WordPress. And before you started Ghost you were a WordPress
1: developer. What are some of the problems with WordPress? (laughs) I think the pros of WordPress generally outweigh the cons in the macro spectrum, which is that you can use WordPress for just about anything, and you can really do an incredibly diverse range of things with it as a piece of technology, despite a lot of the stick it gets. I think my criticisms of WordPress are in a really specific niche, which is for publishing, for doing specifically publishing, almost where WordPress really started out in that blogging, era it has become quite cumbersome quite difficult quite slow and kind of really moved away from that focus as it's diversified and grown up as you will so at the time some five years ago when i was working on wordpress i also was doing a lot of freelancing for clients and they all wanted blogs they were all publishers and i felt the frustrations from a publishing mindset more than anything else and that's where i think wordpress these days is is not really the best tool anymore so when did
0: you start having the idea to make a different platform? So I was
1: contributing to WordPress for a good, I think, three years and probably two of those years. I was thinking there's space here for an alternative, but I always rejected that idea in my own head as being too obvious. And, you know, who wants yet another blogging platform? <laughs> it was the general narrative and still is to this day the general narrative. So I always thought that idea will never work. And who was it that did want an alternative blogging platform? No one outright. I think in two thousand thirteen there was this. We had this little mini renaissance of of blogging where Medium was just getting started. Subtle was really, as in SV, subtle was really cool at the time. Dustin Curtis's thing. Ghost had just had a, a blog post at the end of th- two thousand twelve that went wild on Hacker News, and there was this little mini resurgence of uh, of people being interested in in blogging technology as a whole. So there, I wouldn't say there was any specific group that was really demanding a new product, but there was. definitely a, a renewed interest in the space again
0: well in software there's often a pendulum swing between when a platform gets too complicated then it creates an opportunity for something in the same space to emerge that is fulfilling some of the same use cases but is more opinionated and it seems like blogging was such an expansive area That the fact that WordPress was dominating it, despite the fact that WordPress is not only a blog, it's a multipurpose CMS and e-commerce thing and all these other things, it's clear that there was space for something more opinionated. Yeah, I think that's fair. But what about the plugin ecosystem? So WordPress has this vast ecosystem of open source plugins, and in some sense, that creates a network effect that's really hard to penetrate. What was your thinking on the plugin ecosystem when you were going into Ghost to start it?
1: That's a really interesting one, because WordPress has this enormous plugin ecosystem, which is more often than not heralded as its its biggest strength. It's a bit of a double-edged sword. So there are a lot of good plugins for WordPress that can make it do all kinds of different things. There's premium ones which will add entire bits of functionality like an e-commerce store like WooCommerce for example and there's there's free ones which will just kind of make WordPress work the way it really should have worked out of the box like um, Yoast's SEO plugin for example And and there's a handful of them that really everyone uses. Every single WordPress site gets set up in the exact same way with a handful of the exact same plugins. So our initial kind of take on that was why should you need plugins to do a lot of these things. Doesn't everyone just want SEO to work? Doesn't everyone just want their images to work correctly? Uh, shouldn't these things just be baked into core? And if you if you do that, if you have a sole use case focus of publishing and you build in all of the traditional plugins that people would have to install separately uh, from the start, then, well, you really negate a lot of the need for a kind of plugin functionality. Not to say that Plugins have no purpose, but the, the purpose is vastly reduced versus WordPress. And if you look at that plugin directory, a massive amount of it is duplication. This if you search for, you know, I don't know, a Twitter plugin for WordPress, you'll get a ridiculous number of results. And most of them are bad. You know, there's one or two popular ones. And you'll also get a lot that have really stagnated. WordPress is starting to do a better job of, of hiding the, the old plugins from the directory, but there's tens of thousands of plugins which are not compatible with the latest version of WordPress. They have enormous problems when you activate them when with conflicting with other plugins, so it's not all plain sailing. Not to mention that WordPress's biggest criticism in the developer ecosystem uh, by far, and anyone who's ever heard of WordPress will have heard of the security concerns and the exploits. And 100% of that is down to plugins. It's not core. The The core team are, are pretty good at keeping WordPress tightly <laughs> secured in every sense of the word, but they can't account for vulnerabilities in plugins, which expose an entire site. So yeah, I think there's there's positives to that giant ecosystem, but there there are sufficient negatives that it's not as clear cut as it might seem seem on the outset.
0: Right, regarding that security issue with the plugins, I had a plugin that was just serving some function on my WordPress. I don't even know what function it was serving, but then all of a sudden one day it started serving ads for. Acai berries and reverse mortgages and those salacious, terrible ads that you sometimes see on these WordPress sites because it was running some code that I didn't know to do something like resize an image or something stupid like that. Great. It's, yeah. So it's yeah. Like thanks. So what do you do in terms of a plugin ecosystem? Do you have a plugin ecosystem or do you just try to bake in everything agnostic of plugins?
1: Where we started out was we had, in 2013, two developers and we were just trying to build the, the core platform and, and not think about plugins yet because there was too much responsibility. And then we kind of got stuck in that rut and five years later, we still haven't really figured it out. But I think we've got more clear-cut ideas now of what plugins are and what plugins mean. I think that's also changed somewhat in the architecture of the web as, as things have grown and, and the way in which we build applications. So currently, there, there are ways of extending and integrating Ghost uh, using either webhooks or zapier and we try and look at the use cases for where people want plugins what they actually want them to do and it's it's usually it's very vague and a lack of clear use cases is the main thing that prevents us from doing something more urgently so it's yeah we're trying to figure it out I think what's coming up that's really interesting is this whole notion of serverless and uh, Lambda and a slight change in the architecture of of how applications are built, where there's this uh, kind of interesting possibility of of could you have plugins or, or pieces of code exist externally to an application that would allow it to be extended without needing to be directly integrated into a code base. I think that has some interesting possibilities. But on the whole, our biggest hesitation with just making plugins for the sake of making plugins has been as soon as third-party developers start depending on things, well, then you're in the backwards compatibility hellhole, right? And you either go the WordPress route of you never break any third-party developer stuff ever and kind of get stuck with a lot of lot of baggage. Or you go the Drupal route, where you break everyone's backwards compatibility and destroy your entire ecosystem every two to three years and kind of start over. Uh, and neither of those seem super appealing. So we've been hesitant, more hesitant about getting it wrong, perhaps than we should be. But yeah, it's an interesting one, for sure.
0: Let's go a little bit deeper on that serverless idea, because you're basically saying that if you wanted an ecosystem of plugins, it would be cool if if they were maybe serverless functions that were deployed on AWS lambda or azure functions or google functions and these things are super cheap mm-hmm. per execution mm-hmm. so you could make some shim over that that either deployed these quote plugins basically these these blobs of code to serverless functions or you could do, you know there's also these container instances which are like longer li- kind of longer lived serverless Uh, instances, but then you actually have to keep the server running so those can be a little more costly. What would that look like? Are you starting to think more clearly about that or are you very much in the ideation step?
1: Um, We're kind of in the stage of looking at that as a probable trajectory for the way in which the web is going in the next five years and thinking about how we could fit into it as opposed to try and work against it or how we could take advantage of these new technologies that are coming rather than be scared by being taken over by them, which... (laughs) is obviously going to happen to everyone sooner or later so you either go with it or you go against it but there's only one way historically that of those two that has worked so it's it's kind of taking the long view and i think there's there's very little certainty on how that will work what the economies of scale might be in terms of cost but i think it's kind of curious to imagine a plugin as a service based architecture, if you will, where you perhaps have an open source, very small code base that lives in a centralized location, updated by a single developer as opposed to needing to push updates in a more kind of zip or package development workflow, but can do continuous integration on a hosted plugin living somewhere externally and have a decentralized network of sites depend on that functionality and be able to maintain and deploy updates to it. I think that's that's really interesting. And of course, it could still be open source. There's no reason that code has to be centralized in one location. It could be centralized in multiple locations. But that's one of the examples of where I think serverless or Lambda is going to start creating interesting ways of building apps that we haven't considered possible. Well, I mean, they haven't been possible until now, but we'll flip some thinking on its head, potentially in future.
0: What's an example of a plugin when you're envisioning this serverless plugin ecosystem, what's an example of a plugin that comes to mind that could be quite useful if it was deployed that way?
1: You can ingest some data on your site, send it off to, in an API request, send it off to a service to be processed or to do something with it or to be stored, and then get a result back that you want to be rendered. So, that I mean, that can go anywhere from as small as ad rendering all the way through to, you know, maybe a full comment platform. It just depends what the, what the architecture of the data and the users ends up being and how those pieces interact with one another. And I think it's, it's a little too difficult to, to form fully fledged examples or fully thought out ideas of how these things might play together because it's uh, there's, there's too many unknowns right now, but I can, I can definitely see the way in which people are using, if you think of it as extending the way in which people currently interact with headless CMSs and everything being an API, and then go a step further beyond that to every piece of functionality being an API, I can think you can you can kind of follow that to a, a really interesting logical conclusion where everything talks to everything else and your end result is a combination.
0: Yeah, intuitively, it seems like A-B testing and rollouts of new features and other kinds of testing uh, and, of course, scalability, uh, maybe even things like machine learning could be made significantly easier for consumer level or, you know, this this sort of semi-technical user, the type of user that's capable of operating a blog but may not be a developer, giving them access to these tools in a way that's not preponderously expensive or hard to operate. It could really next-level what a blogging platform even means,
1: yeah, definitely. And we're we're certainly thinking outside of that label. I mean, we have been for a few years now. The word blog has become somewhat uncool. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, <laughs> people don't really use it with the same fervor as which me. they did in two thousand and eight. <laughs> but uh yeah, no, I think. Blogging as a concept, like a pre-social media concept almost, is on its last legs. But publishing is not going anywhere anytime soon. And there will be different models of publishing and different different setups for that and different things to do with that long into the future. And I think that's agnostic of our traditional reverse chronological feed of posts. It can it can be something that looks that looks very different to that. When I think of, you know, what's a modern newspaper, I think of something like Product Hunt or Nomad List. You know, there's still curated homepages of information where you go to inform yourself about topic to see what's new to understand an industry or a world that you're a part of a little better. There's community participation, there's you can subscribe to the whole thing or different parts of it. And I think those are really good examples of of what modern journalism could look like that that is far beyond the traditional written blog.
0: Let's tell a bit of the story behind Ghost. So you were working on WordPress in some fashion. I'm not exactly sure what you were doing (laughs) in the WordPress project. But then you eventually decided you wanted to start Ghost. You funded the project through Kickstarter. Now you have a foundation, the Ghost Foundation. So Ghost is a non-profit. But you also have a SaaS business. and So you've got a unique financial structure of Ghost. Give a little bit of the
1: History of Ghost and then catch us up to the present. Yeah, sure. So years ago, I was—I uh, I think I mentioned this briefly already. I was a freelance web developer, and and I kind of started getting involved contributing to WordPress because I I felt it would be a competitive advantage to be to be on the inside of WordPress if I was servicing clients doing WordPress work, right? So it seems it seemed like an obvious thing to do to me. So I just started volunteering in the the design working group of uh, of WordPress. Wait, so when you started working on WordPress, you already knew you were going to create a competitor? No, I meant a competitive advantage with my clients. Like if I could say oh, I work okay. on, I'm sorry, I misunderstood. <laughs> I work on WordPress, then then that would uh that would seem like to me it would look pretty good to to the clients I was I was selling work to. Ah this is Okay, got it got it. Back in like two thousand and ten or something. So the they had just formed a design working group to make UI decisions within WordPress, still very new. There were only a, a handful of people involved. And so I showed up. A I eventually got promoted to deputy head of of that design working group, leading a lot of the design ideation, interaction design, and front-end development of those features from, uh, I think it was WordPress 2.9 through to about 3.2, 3.3, maybe 3.2 point something. So that was the the initial route into open source and what kind of got me hooked on those things. I also found a lot of things about WordPress which I didn't like or I felt could be better or I, or I thought about them in the manner of if I were to do my own thing, I would do this differently. And one of the biggest ones was was Business Model, as you mentioned. And I saw WordPress have this, this confusing relationship between WordPress.org and WordPress.com and Automatic and Audrey Capital and the WordPress Foundation, which are ostensibly five different organizations all controlled by the same person but all of which have conflicting interests and a lot of overlap and confusion to the point where, you know, even the, the tech media can't ever choose the right one when they're writing a story. And so I saw WordPress become this very popular open source project. And at the same time, there were a bunch of these managed hosting companies, which were starting to do very well. There's WP Engine, you've got Flywheel got uh, Pagely. There's some other much bigger ones. And that seemed like a really obvious business model. Like you make the open source software and then you sell the managed hosting for it, which is a, a high price service. It's not shared hosting. We're not talking about GoDaddy here. We're talking about 30, $40 a month starting point. So my idea for the business model was, what if you just combined those things? And rather than having this conflict of interest between a venture backed organization on the one hand, which kind of had priorities which are overriding the open source non-profit organization on the other hand why not just have a single non-profit with a sustainable profitable business model doing the hosting and reinvest all of the money of that into developing the open source software so completely clean no no mess no like oh there are actually some vcs in the corner but we hide them uh, just a clean honest business model that would be very transparent a lot more like mozilla than than automatic wouldn't that be nice? And that was kind of part of that initial blog post I wrote of like, here's an idea for a product and also an idea of a business model that could support it. Yeah, I guess people seem to like it. With WordPress, what are the conflicts
0: of interest that create that cognitive dissonance you're suggesting?
1: It's a lot of things. I think you see it a lot less as a bystander and you see it a lot more as soon as you uh, start getting involved in the WordPress community, particularly in the core community. Uh, You have... The Automatic, which has 300, $350 million of funding, and the CEO of which is Matt Mullenweg, who is the founder of WordPress, who is also the head of the WordPress Foundation, which owns the trademark, but is not entirely linked to WordPress.org, which is the steward of the open source projects, which is also owned and run by Matt Mullenweg. And there's a complete overlap in the leadership and decision-making of all of these things. But one of them has... million worth of expectations on it to return a a unicorn-based valuation or exit or IPO at some point. And the others, all of the others are marketed as, uh, you know, this is to democratize publishing. This is to make the web better. This is for the people. And uh, and those things, I'm sorry, uh, no matter how much you say them, those things are categorically at odds. And if you try to say you're trying to democratize publishing whilst overlooking the conflict of interest of $350 million of uh, old white guys' money on the line, then you're lying. So there's, there's some real deception there. I think most people are not aware of it. And to some extent, it's not the be-all and end-all of this discussion because WordPress is open source. It does have a GPL license and that does engender certain freedoms which are inalienable no matter what happens to automatic the company. But in terms of how the leadership uh, operates and how the product is built, it's very, very, very significant. And um, yeah, it really affects the trajectory of the product. And I think you can see that in the the development of WordPress over the last, uh, last few years. I don't want to be too negative on WordPress here. I think it's a great product and it does important things. I'm not necessarily a fan of the, the product development strategy, nor do I think it's a very good one, but the product itself and the community around it is uh, is incredibly, incredibly good.
0: So I can absolutely see how the incentives are set up to be not completely aligned with democratizing publishing. Do you have any examples? Like, I've, I've used WordPress for the last 10 years, so I, I feel like I know you know, how the WordPress ecosystem has evolved to some degree. Are there any particular examples that come to mind where you're like, that was an example where it would have gone differently if there would have been five independent people in charge of these five different organizations instead of one person with cognitive dissonance?
1: Oh, there's so many, yeah. But there's a lot of it's very inside baseball. That's probably not interesting to, to most people who are listening to this. There's been a lot of odd decisions over the years around when to enforce the GPL to the fullest extent and when not to, you know, it seems like when other commercial companies are able to make a lot of money out of WordPress, then that law or that those some rules get enforced more heavily than others. People get banned from speaking at WordPress conferences if they don't fulfill a certain version of the license, which doesn't apply to other areas. It's, it's all very inconsistent. That's the main thing. In terms of product development, there's decisions which I think if WordPress, the open source project was truly kind of a democratized organization or at least an independent one uh, would have been made different in terms of what things are, are optimized for. But that's more speculation, I think. I, I imagine WordPress, the open source project would have gone in some different directions if it were not for the implicit need to compete with Squarespace and Shopify and Tumblr simultaneously. Which is kind of the burden that WordPress.com bears, the the commercial organization,
0: right? So the licensing stuff, um, and I, I know it's inside baseball, but trust me, the listeners, uh, they, they're, they they are they are fans. Of, baseball, <laughs> they are fans of the of the most inside of uh, baseball type okay. games. Well, license is so, my favorite subject. <laughs> oh, let's go there. So licenses specifically. So what are the things? If I'm a WordPress hosting company like a WP Engine or HostGator. ...or Bluehost, one of these WordPress hosting services, what could I do to induce the ire of Matt Mullenweg and his
1: five diverse organizations? <laughs> As a hosting company, not much other than perhaps use the, the word WordPress in a, in a domain name. That right is reserved solely for automatic. and no- Oh, that's bizarre. And nobody else. So that's why all these <laughs> things are like WP blog. Exactly <laughs> right. Yes. The trademark WP is WP only- happiness. Exactly right. The trademark is not permitted for use by anyone in a top-level domain name. We do the same, to be honest. This is not incli- entirely disingenuous. We just don't also then license it to a commercial organization that we own on Control. And Drupal, Drupal also does the same. As a hosting company, there's... There's not that much uh, that you can really do now. If you, on the other hand, are a, a theme organization, a theme company, or a, a plugin company, well, that's that's where things get very different, and that that's where we have to start talking about the GPL, and what the GPL means, and where things get very interesting. I I tweeted a few weeks ago: the GPL is the communism of software licenses, and then that made like a whole bunch of people really angry. And then <laughs> and then I tweeted like, oh. Can't believe people who have uh, who make brash statements on Twitter with absolutely no context and think this is a suitable medium for discussion. Me and then this tweet also me. So uh, somewhat hypocritical. But the, the GPL gets interesting because the viral nature of the GPL starts coming into play when you when you talk about themes and plugins. So you have this core code base which is GPL licensed. The viral nature of the GPL says anything that is a derivative work of the original code also inherits the license. So is a theme or a plugin or an extension built on top of the core platform is that derivative work. Now, according according to courts of law, specifically American ones, uh, we don't know because it's never been put to trial. It's never been put to a test. So there's no legal precedent to operate from. But according to Matt and Matt's lawyers, who were very highly paid, it means that, well, <laughs> essentially whatever he wants it to mean, but If you try and build a a theme for WordPress and you say, I'm going to license this with a commercial license, then that's not allowed. So you're banned now from all WordPress conferences. Uh, You're not allowed to speak there. I'm not sure if you're allowed to attend, maybe it's just not speak. Uh, You can't get listed in any sort of WordPress plugin repository or store. If you in any way defy the GPL, then, then you're kind of, you're locked out. So when it comes to licensing, I find that to be an obnoxious choice. I think that's the Jehovah's Witness approach to software licensing, where you say, you can come and be a part of this cool club, you can have this free software I've made, you can play with the cool kids, and and we're doing this great thing for the world, But, but if you join us, not only are you then a part of our religion, but all of your kids that you have are also automatically a part of our religion, and there's absolutely nothing they can do about it. They have no say in that matter. And that seems a little odd to me, like, isn't the whole point of open source to give people freedom to give people choice, but at the same time, you're then taking it away again. So when we were thinking about licenses for Ghost, we absolutely did not want to go anywhere near that route. I think it's a much more powerful idea to give people the choice of what license to use and leave it up to them. So we say Ghost is MIT licensed. If you want to build something on top of it and release it as open source, that is your Inalienable, inalienable right if you want to build something on top of it and release it as closed source or not release it at all, do something commercial with it that is also your right because open source gives you that choice to choose the, the hope is that you would look at our example, our, us as role models and perhaps be inspired by it and also want to do something good for the world also want to pay it forward in some way but the notion that that is optional I think is more powerful than the notion that by being given something you have to give away your future rights to your work as well so
0: gpl that means that if they copy or if they make if i if if i'm a wordpress theme designer i make a custom theme i can't sell it as closed source software correct i see and now i see your communism analogy (laughs) because it forces everybody to share to the same degree that word wordpress arbitrates
1: Correct. Yes. So it optimizes for the good of the people rather than the good of the individual is the theory. Hmm. <laughs> There's, but I will I will say that everything I've just said is extremely nuanced. And, you know, I have opinions, and I don't expect everyone to agree with them. And there are, there are different interpretations of this people who are GPL activists or GPL fans will say that this is for the good of software and it's copyleft, which is the opposite of copyright. And the whole point is to enforce the perpetuation of, of free software so that it can't at some point be taken over by Microsoft and be taken away from the people. So there's different ways of interpreting this. I Personally, I think if you want that approach or if that's what you're worried about, then the best license is the MPL And the Mozilla public license protects against the original code from ever being changed. So if if, if, uh, if WordPress was MPL, then WordPress core could never be relicensed as closed source, but anyone can build whatever they want on top of it. Like that freedom is still granted, but the original code could never, could never be changed. I think that's a cool model. Problem with the MPL is if you say your project is MPL licensed, you're going to spend the rest of your life explaining what that means. So that's, that's also one of the reasons Ghost ended up as MIT because after, I don't know how many years of, GPL debates, I was pretty ready to, to focus on a project where I didn't need to discuss the license every 10 seconds. You just say, it's MIT, and everyone goes, cool, and that's the end of that discussion.
0: Well, I think I can see what twists you up a little bit about the fact that it would be this communist-style license uh, to use your words, when, in contrast, WordPress, the word, cannot be used in a URL that is not wordpress.com so there's some i sense that there is some hypocrisy from your point of view between the uh, the openness or the forced openness of for example themes theme you know extensions versus the overall mentality of the wordpress the company which is you know by virtue of taking on a bunch of venture funding has to have some proprietary advantage over the, the vast populace of WordPress, other other WordPress hosts. So, you know, I without going further inside into the baseball, I think we kind <laughs> of I think we kind of get the point that there is some conflict in terms of the governance model that you recognize.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. And I'll say that I don't have any particular criticism for automatic or WordPress.com needing to optimize for shareholders or fiduciary right. duty. That's what a company has to do. That is right. that, that is the model. But I think the summation of this entire kind of discussion and the different avenues we've explored here is there's confusion, there's disparate motivations and interests. And all of this culminates, regardless of, of what specific issue we're talking about and what the exact answer is to any of it, all of this confusion and disparate interest culminates into a community, a business model, an ecosystem which is somewhat cloak and dagger. It presents itself as one thing, then you find out it's something else uh, and then you really have to sort of try and figure out like what, okay, what's the real truth in here? What's what's the real motivation? Who? What's the real story? And that's a very, very frustrating experience and I can tell you as a core contributor to WordPress, it, it, uh, I became very disillusioned with it after a couple of years of, of contributing on an entirely volunteer basis, my, my time and my energy to open source. So our model was as much inspired by lots of other economic and, and marketing based reasons as it was by wanting to have a business model, a structure, a license, uh, something that was just transparent, incredibly easy to understand and where you could you could quickly assess and understand the motivations and the interests behind decisions being made, which in our case as MIT licensed, not-for-profit organization is just, we try and build the best product we can. That's kind of it. There's not really any other weird stuff going on. Speaking of uh, weird stuff,
0: WordPress is mostly PHP, I believe, and, you know, since you started Ghost, what, three, was, was it three years ago? Five now. Five years ago, okay. So, you started Ghost five years ago, the front-end world had moved on so much that you could, I mean, again, no offense to WordPress, like, they started in PHP because that was, uh, you know, among state-of-the-art uh, back when WordPress was started, but you got a, a clean slate, so you got to choose your own adventure when it came to what front end you you wanted to use. Can you describe the early architecture for Ghost <laughs> and what you got right, what you got wrong, whether you've had to make any significant
1: adjustments or refactoring since then? Yeah, absolutely. I think the first version of Ghost you could describe as a PHP application built in Node. It was Node. I'm being slightly uh, self-deprecating here. Like, oh, okay. I-, I came from a PHP world, and my, my co-founder and CTO, Hannah, was uh, was very much a PHP developer transitioning into JavaScript. And even just in terms of how the code base was structured, it looked structurally a lot more like a PHP application than a Node application, just because kind of that's the world we came from. What's interesting is that, I don't know, I might have a slightly different... Answer here to what what people might expect. I have very, very few criticisms of PHP on the whole. And if anything, I think choosing to go down the the Node.js route or the, the full stack JS route has been equal parts hindrance and help. There are some really, really interesting PHP publishing platforms out there at the moment, which are are not WordPress and are not in the WordPress space. Um Craft CMS is one, incredibly powerful, very interesting, built on the E2 framework. And then you have Statomic, which is very similar, very similar product, but built on top of Laravel. And Laravel is one of the most awesome things I think that's happened in the last 10 years. And had we gone down a PHP route, I think from a product point of view, we'd probably be a lot further along. Than we are now because in, in the PHP ecosystem, uh, much like in the, the Ruby ecosystem or even the, the Python ecosystem to some extent, this tooling is well understood. It has evolved over a long uh, amount of time. You know, you, you have your defaults that just work. You have your libraries, which have been time-tested, proven. They're great. Whereas in end of 2012, beginning of 2013, starting out into the Node.js ecosystem, Pretty wild west. Like, there was not a lot of stuff going on. There was barely a usable authentication library that we could start working with. And even to this day, you know, it's not, there's a lot of things where if you were working in Ruby or PHP, you'd go, yeah, obviously I'll just grab this library that everyone uses. Whereas in Node, you go, I can't believe that doesn't exist. I think when we wrote the first version of Ghost, there wasn't like a usable RSS library for passing XML and delivering RSS feeds in Node. And that was just, mind-boggling. And then that has repeated enough times to to where it really slowed us down. So what we got from that early choice to go full JavaScript was some marketing buzz. Like if we had said, oh, we're building another publishing platform, PHP, unlikely that would have gained a lot of developer excitement or interest. On the flip side, it's been a lot more technically challenging, particularly as the Node.js ecosystem has also evolved more towards microservices as opposed to fully-fledged web, web applications for lots of obvious reasons, which has also been a challenge. So it's been a real mix in terms of uh, those early architectural choices and which ones paid off and which ones didn't. So you, you're asking, like, what was a good decision, what was bad? I, I think one that I sometimes mentioned that we made early on was we, we built Ghost more kind of all-in-one repository, more monolith style than decouples into modules. And that got a lot of shtick from node.js kind of big name developers early on, because they were like, you're doing it wrong. Everything should be an NPM module. Everything should be decoupled always. You know, you should have 364,000 different repositories and then NPM install them. And we were like, but we don't, we don't even know what the modules are yet. We don't know what makes sense as a module. We, this is a sandbox. We're trying to figure out what this, what this app even is, what it does, you know, where, where the moving parts are. So we I say we, it's mainly Hannah, when we talk about the actual architecture here, said we're gonna stick to our guns. We're gonna stay more monolithy just to begin with, so we can figure out where the edges where the edges are, what things make sense to to pull out into components further down the line. That what turned out to be a really good decision, because it allowed us to move faster, it allowed us to build more quickly, it allowed us to deliver a product that we could then iterate on rather than worrying about a long term architecture for a product that was as yet unproven.
0: Okay, so two good lessons so far. So one, I need to stop dissing PHP. I thought I learned this lesson because I I did an interview a while ago with <laughs> the I think it was the Slack CTO or VP of engineering. Did you know Slack is in PHP? Yeah, the back end, right? Yeah I guess it's just the back end, but yeah, I think it was Keith Keith Adams, and he he came from Facebook to Slack. So he came from like the biggest PHP app ever to probably the second biggest PHP app ever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and uh, Facebook's all PHP,
0: right? No, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, he came from Facebook. Oh, I see. Sorry, you just started working out. on Slack. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I got to stop dissing PHP. Okay. So when we start to talk about how to archi- okay. Now we, you've you've sort of given the overview for for the Ghost architecture or given a, a little bit about it, and you said, I thought that the aspect of keeping it monolithic, you know, the virtues of the monolith are well taken and, and and good to think about. There are other CMSs, like the headless CMSs, like the Gatsby. We had Gatsby on the show a while ago, and there's also Netlify, I think. What do you think of these models? Are these playing in a, these these headless CMSs, are these in a different space than
1: ghost do you think of them as for a different type of customer i think in many ways they are the natural evolution of of where things are headed next i think they're very very interesting especially especially gatsby especially netlify especially a bunch of these newer platforms which are for now pretty small are doing really really interesting things i honestly think that in in five to ten years time ghost will look more like them than them looking like us i think having apps be more decoupled, more API driven, whether they are open sourced or closed source, whether they are centralized or decentralized is likely going to be the way we end up going. Yeah, I'm not sure, of course, but I'm a big fan. Put it that way. Yeah, and
0: I think in that podcast we were talking before the show that you did a podcast, where you have a, a podcast, I think it's This Week in Ghost, is that what it's called? Yeah, we do it every six months. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, this uh, half, yearly half in Ghost. <laughs> but the most recent one that I heard, at least, you and uh, and your co-founder were talking about the API for Ghost and and the fact that you can just treat your Ghost backend as a JSON API, uh, I think there's maybe you're still working on the making it permissioned but it's clear that that's part of the vision So yeah. the idea of of decoupling it from the front end so are have people written custom front ends for the ghost backend API
1: Yes a couple have not that many but ghost has always been a self-consuming JSON API, if you will. So the Ghost Core is is a JSON API, and Ghost Admin is a client-side Ember app that writes to it, and a kind of uh, a thing that serves your site is just uh, a little Express server with Handlebars that that renders pages. So it's it's always kind of been designed with these three parts. Currently, those parts are, are tightly coupled, and what we haven't gotten to yet, but where I very much see us going is in loosening those couples and eventually making them entirely optional, so that you could use Ghost as a headless CMS if you wanted to, either self-hosted or centrally hosted. And you could build different experiences on top of it. I think the most notable version of that that's currently happened is is actually at Apple. They use Ghost for all of their internal team websites. So they've built custom front ends for that, but they use Ghost as, as the, the primary platform behind it. Um, I was talking to someone there and they said the one modification they made where they hacked Core was to, uh, to put in Apple's LDAP SAML, whatever the hell it is, iCloud based user system rather than ours, which makes perfect sense. I'm like, I wish you'd you know pull requests to that upstream because that, <laughs> that would have been a handy thing to have, but no, cool to hear. That's awesome. Okay.
0: I want to talk about the development and the open source nature because much of that podcast that I heard between you and Hannah is the name of your co-founder, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so much of that conversation or a lot of it was the fact that open source is really hard and it's it's hard to manage this mob of people. You know, sometimes the issue the you know, your your issue tracking can just get completely out of control. You've got to use GitHub. It's not like there's, there's really alternatives to GitHub for social coding. Tell me about the biggest challenges of managing a large open source project. Oh,
1: it's difficult and... I feel like it's getting harder. There's different models to this as well. So I I feel like if you are the maintainer of a a library, a development library, which is the sole users of which are other developers, uh, you have a somewhat different experience to if you build a consumer or at least end user product. The one has kind of the former has less opinions and and more uh, is more open to it's not, you know, it's all code at the end of the day. And most of the time there are bugs that need fixing, but there's less kind of opinions or stigma around the way in which that works. To some extent, I'm very much generalizing here. Whereas compared and contrasted to a product like Ghost, like uh, any sort of web app or um, perhaps Bootstrap is another example. uh, When there's there's a visual component, there's a UI, there's a front end, there's something to interact with, something to have an opinion about, then it becomes... um, people want features. They don't just want code. They don't just want, you know, the output of an API to change slightly, but they want, and they have entire use cases about how things should work differently. And you also attract a a much broader level of uh, interest and or criticism because it's not always just developers. I think, whereas in the past where people use things like track, I mean, WordPress still does, you would have this barrier to entry, which would mean that people would have to work quite hard to get involved in open source. And as a result, they'd be quite willing to be involved in the process of making open source. Whereas now with GitHub being a pseudo social network, I think it's, and I mentioned this in the five-year blog post that we did late recently, I think it's become too easy to demand support or to make feature requests, but to bear no responsibility for contributing to open source whatsoever. And I always try to, to reinforce in some to some degree when people say, you know, this should work like this, or this should work like that, or why is there no Postgres support, which is the one we get most often, that if you use an open source product, you are by default one of its maintainers. If you use an open source project, you are by default one of its maintainers. It is not up to Uh, some anonymous group of people working for free to sit around a table and fix the thing that you're outraged about It is up to you to participate. It is up to you to get involved and GitHub I think has made that worse not better. It's too easy to open an issue. It is too hard to close one. It's too easy to Get a whole load of reactions and thumbs up and emoji and comments on an issue and it is too hard to open a pull request still so in many ways GitHub has become this kind of transactional support tool for maintainers which has become overwhelming in a lot of ways. And I talk to a lot of, of the really big open source maintainers because we compare notes on at various points how how depressed we're feeling about people's negative attitudes towards open source as a whole and if there's anything we can do about it. And I've got to tell you, like, there's a lot of people who are in a really bad spot. There's a lot of maintainers who are running some of the biggest projects out there who don't have a sustainable business model like we're very fortunate to have who get even more demands and issue requests on, on their time and even less help. I don't feel like GitHub have been working to solve that. I think there's a big wasted opportunity there in the kind of open source creator community, which has not been capitalized upon in the way that YouTube do a really great job of kind of uh, collaborating with their creator community, GitHub kind of don't. So it's tough. It's tough. I think for the most part, people still, still don't get it. And when I say people, I include the vast majority of the developer ecosystem in that. And I'm not. I'm still not sure how we fix it. And unfortunately, every keynote I've ever seen, every podcast I've ever listened to, every blog post I've ever read, particularly Nolan Lawson's, the ultimate kind of example, what it feels like to be an open source maintainer. <laughs> I've read that one. Comes to the same ultimate conclusion, which is this is really difficult and I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> that, that post is so depressing. It's one of the most depressing because of how relatable it is, yeah. That's the one where the guy is like,
0: he's made some popular open source repository and he like, he just gets burned out. He never checks it. And then like, he talks about going to check it after it's been two weeks. And he, he like goes into his notifications and just
1: like clicks on one. And it's somebody flaming him. And he's like, oh my God, no, it just hurts. Exactly. It hurts so bad. Yeah. And um, Fat from, what's his name? Real name, Jacob Thornton. One of the, the co-creators of Bootstrap, works at Twitter, then Medium bunch of other things he's got a, a really great keynote from uh was it Le web or the next web it was somewhere in france a few years back of uh, of the same thing you know like friday nights at home trying to close github <laughs> issues of people with false bug reports and his friends oh, texting no. him and asking him to go out and and him feeling really upset about that i bet microsoft's gonna improve that well, this is this is the sad thing. After I wrote my, my five-year blog post reflecting on some of this and, and sharing some of the thoughts I had about GitHub, someone pretty senior at GitHub reached out and said, we care about this and we want to work on it. And then about two weeks later, the Microsoft acquisition happened and I never heard from them again. And that's not at all surprising to me. I, unfortunately, I think Microsoft in the long run and the, the long-term trajectory may well improve this. But in the short-term trajectory, it's unrealistic to think that the next two years will be anything but a long handover transition period, probably a lot of churn in headcount and a lot of integration work into existing teams and products. So I don't see GitHub doing anything for the next two years. In fact, I think GitLab are in like the most opportunistic position they've ever been in right now because cause GitHub are going to struggle uh, during this, this kind of this transition to to make meaningful progress. So we'll see. But in short time I don't have high hopes. Okay, a lot there we could continue to
0: go into. I want to <laughs> I want to ask you a bit about the SAS business just because that's another area. I mean, there's so much meat to this project, so much we could discuss and I'm hoping we can get your co-founder on as well because I want to talk to her because I this project is super interesting. But the SAS business, so you you have built a hosting platform yeah. and I know that's not easy because you've got scalability you've got to pick out a cloud provider you've got to scale a support team you've got to figure out pricing like building a building a hosting service is super hard so yeah what are your hardest memories in building the SaaS platform and your biggest learnings
1: oh god so many it's a little tangential but it's, it's very related one one of The things we've done well that has also really bitten us in the last five years is that Ghost has established itself pretty well as a a mainstream open source brand or brand within the tech industry. Like a a lot of people know what it is. A lot of people are pretty familiar with it. It's pretty high quality in most of the areas that people interact with. So it, it looks for all intents and purposes like a bigger company than it is. On the one hand, that's great. We get, we get big customers. We get a lot of organic growth. We've never done any marketing whatsoever. And revenue has always grown consistently since day one. On the flip side, uh, the expectations are exorbitantly high um, in many regards. And we run the entire hosting platform, which serves over 100 million requests a month with uh, currently one, one person, one part-time systems administrator. We did have two, but teams currently down to one. And the entire product team uh, of the Ghost open source product is, is only two full-time people. So we have this this tiny team that is taking on disproportionately large engineering challenges, going up against competitors who, I mean, the biggest two of whom, you know, have three, both have $350 million of VC behind them and San Francisco's hipster support network to, to help them do their thing. So we're, we're actually really, really, really small that's not always apparent. That's not always clear. So the building a hosting platform has been a monumental task. And uh, if you had told me how monumental uh, five years ago, I I might have reconsidered the entire business model because it turns out, which we discovered quite quickly, hosting Node.js is also about 752,000 times more complicated than hosting PHP. Who knew, right? So the most painful parts, I think, have been around uh, learning that and understanding that and really figuring out how to build out a hosting. Why is it so hard? When you have PHP and Apache, you, you pretty much just run Apache and then you throw PHP on it and everything you do is just a, a, a PHP function. Like it's the kind of state of your dev environment is just there perpetually or in perpetuity and, and works. Whereas in Node, like everything has to be initialized. Everything has to be installed. You have all your build processes, then things are are running, waiting on each other. It's just a very, very different world you hit scaling issues a lot more quickly. And the complexity of maintaining that environment is, is significantly higher. For for a more technically complete answer, if you have Hannah on the show, I'm sure she can draw those comparisons. But yeah, I mean, you can throw a whole bunch of WordPress sites on, on one Apache server and they'll all essentially just work. Uh, there's no there's nothing to do. You unzip the package, you put it in a folder, you, as long as that folder is mapped to some sort of domain, it will run any Node.js app. You know, you you unzip it, you decompress it, you install the dependencies, you run the install process, you run the build pipeline, you hope that the output compiles, you run a CLI tool to configure the various different environment variables um, and get everything going. And then um, you hope, then pray that it all works. And of course, usually it doesn't. And whereas you in most cases for a PHP app pretty much just have one environment and that's how things are going to run. The ways in which people want to install Node apps are, are very diverse. You know, like we say, we will run the latest, we will support the latest LTS of Node and uh, we, our install guide covers Ubuntu, I think 16 point whatever at the moment. And then, By and large, people will come along and say, excuse me, I'm trying to install Ghost on a Raspberry Pi that's being powered by three potatoes in my garage using CentOS from 1992 before CentOS was invented, but also using uh, some Perl proxy of JavaScript rather than actual JavaScript. And it's not working. Why is that? And you're just like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing that? It's wild. But people want to use their favorite thing. They always want to use their favorite thing. So those challenges... pretty big but that's a little off track in terms of of hosting architecture it's a lot more expensive a lot more complex and requires a lot more work than i would have guessed we started out on hardware in a data center in the uk then we figured out that every time we'd need to scale we'd have to order a server like two months in advance of needing it from dell and that didn't seem like it made sense in 2015 so we moved to the cloud Uh, we did we have a partnership with DigitalOcean, which is great. They're an amazing company. And they've been very, very good to us over the years. And things have been fantastic working with them. And so that's gotten a lot better. Yeah, but in terms of business model, it's it's panned out. It's allowed us to continue working on open source. And that's that's the real purpose of it, is to have a hosting company which is able to be profitable to an extent that it can employ other people to not work on anything to do with the hosting company, as in to work on the product. And that's the that's the real magic of the business model. That's what the the position we're very fortunate to be in, where we're able to do that. Because obviously, a lot of open source projects, which are libraries or frameworks, there's not any hosting you can sell for that. But we can. So that's that's been really really good. Well, the great thing about the hosting business is people are sticky. And you know, if you
0: get a customer, they probably stick around. I still use HostGator. No offense to HostGator, but I still use it. Enough said. And also, like, I think the thing, the wind that's at your back, and is the same thing that's at the, wind, the, the backs of Medium and WordPress and Squarespace and all these other hosting websites, is there are so many more people who are coming online. Like, a lot of the, I don't know the statistics, but I think, like, only, like, a little more than half the world is online, and, you know, some small portion of the people who are online have enough wherewithal to... Or the, or the desire or the resources to set up their own website. And the number of people who, who have the wherewithal and who have the resources to do that is just going to grow. And so it's like the pie is just getting so big. And I think you're pretty well positioned to, to consume you know your fair share of it. <laughs> so it's a good place to be. I know we're, we're out of time here, but I, I wanted to ask you just one more question. So long-form content on the internet. Some people use Medium. Some people read whatever random WordPress blog. Some people read Kindle books. I read long-form content on Pocket. And I really like Pocket. How is long-form internet content consumption changing?
1: Wildly, unfortunately. I largely don't think it's for the better. I think all the posts about the death of the open web, which apparently no one ironically notices, are appearing on Medium. Don't go far enough. <laughs> I think they're all completely accurate and it It does worry me and does scare me somewhat. I think the way in which we used to 10 years ago visit each other's personal websites or blogs or company websites or follow a a broad range of our own idea of what a social graph should be or a web graph should be across uh, RSS feeds or anything else has largely died. And it hasn't died because... The tools for doing those things have stopped being good or have stopped working. It's died because of the proliferation of, of social networks and the addictiveness of all of all of these things in terms of where we spend our time. It's not that the, the rest of the information we used to go and look at or read doesn't exist anymore. It's still there. It might be diminishing, but it's so much more of an addictive experience to log on to Twitter or to see those likes racking up or to go onto Instagram and, you know, do a duck face and get your social hit of dopamine from the likes on that. And, and so the, the way in which people interact with each other and the web has, has moved very much into, into a centralized silos where long form either doesn't happen as much, or if it does happen, it's not, it's not truly open. It's not truly happening in the same way. And I, I yeah, I have a lot of worries around that. I mean, I know this is uh it's not like I'm, I'm making some broad revelation. This is a pretty popular topic at the moment with even Apple and Google and everyone admitting that their devices have become too addictive and whatever the features they come up with called conscious time. Use your device less, but still buy one. So I think it's difficult. The shred of hope that I have for decentralized long-form content is tied up in ActivityPub, I would say. ActivityPub, for anyone who doesn't know, is W3C specification for essentially an open graph protocol. If you think of it like a web standard for how email works, but applied to a social network like Twitter. So there's a concept of an inbox to receive messages and an outbox to send messages where you can build a decentralized network of nodes which have inboxes and outboxes and all of them are able to follow each other and subscribe to one another. I think that's where things get interesting again because Hmm. we start to have long-form content that isn't tied into any one platform any one network and that's something I'm interested in exploring what's that called the open pub standard uh, activity pub it's what activity pub standard I gotta do a show on that that sounds really interesting yeah you should if you can get the guy from Mastodon in uh, that's the biggest social network built on Activity well, I already Pub. I right did
0: now. a show with him that show was awesome but we didn't talk about activity pub
1: oh okay well they so they started out using a different I think they moved to activity pub within the last year or so so maybe they hadn't switched yet but I think that's a really interesting... It's difficult for these things to catch on because they're yeah. so technical. But if, if ActivityPub is able to be an underlying building block of the web, which most people don't need to understand how it works, they are just able to use it, much, way, much like they don't necessarily need to understand how email works, they just know that they use it, then there's, there's potential there. We're certainly looking at experimenting with it in terms of could we connect all ghost publications together in a decentralized manner, agnostic of where they're hosted and allow them the ability to receive each other's, send and receive each other's posts and consume them much like a a medium feed, but without needing medium. So yeah, that's something I think I hope is able to have long form content, improve a bit. I think the second, um, I keep giving really long answers. I'll just finish maybe with a shorter second part of it. The second part is around aligning economic incentives with the content that people create. I think in, in a world driven by ads and ad impressions and the only money that publishers are able to make being from ads, of course what you end up is with is clickbait. Of course what you end up with is fake news. Because if the only way for a publisher to make money is to get as many ad impressions as possible, to get as many page views as possible, then of course they are going to write the thing, no matter what it is, no matter if it's right or wrong, that will get as many ad impressions as possible. And whether that's you know, ten cutest cats on skateboards this week, or some horrific misinformation from a political standpoint that turns people against each other. You're going to end up with that misaligned content because of the economic business model uh, model behind it. So I think if if we're able to solve some of that as well, if we can get publishers to be able to have a viable business model that is not dependent on ads as their primary source of income, where they are actually serving the readers instead of the advertisers, then we might see higher quality long-form content. We might see higher quality journalism as a whole. If your readers are your customers, then maybe you would write stuff that isn't going to mislead them or disenfranchise them or piss them off. Maybe you would write stuff for them that's actually useful because if you don't, then they will cancel much like every other SaaS business. That's one of the the big challenges we're also looking to work on in the next couple of years
0: john and nolan thank you for coming on software engineering daily it's been
1: really fun talking to you thanks so much for having me wow